morning. Thanks for braving the weather. I'm glad you're here this morning. If I could, I want to start with just a personal prayer request. Uh, in the next few days, I'm going to take time, as I do annually, for my study leave, where I go by myself and uh, just pray and consider what we will walk through over the next year, the sermon series that we'll do together, the passages that we'll look at. I try to plan all that out over the next few days, and so I'd appreciate your, your prayers for that. Terry uh, asked me yesterday, she said, are you excited? And uh, honestly, no is the answer. And, and here's the reason why. It'd be kind of like asking a soldier if he was excited about going to war. Because these next few days for me are a battle. Um, I really think the Lord has used that time significantly for me and in the life of this church. And if that's the case, we know that the enemy is going to do everything he can to disrupt that. So when I'm by myself, I battle being lonely. I battle anxiety. The thought of planning out the next year is a slightly overwhelming thought. And if I stop long enough, I'll hear the enemy start to tell me, you're not going to be able to do it. It doesn't matter anyway. Nobody listens. It doesn't make any difference. Why are you so worried about it? These are the battles that I will face over the next few days. And so it's not something that I'm necessarily excited about. But yet I trust that the Lord will work significantly, and it would be of great comfort for me to know that you were praying for me over the next few days. So I would greatly appreciate that. Speaking of the next few days, tomorrow's a big day, right? 2018, it's finally here. I don't know if uh, you've made out your list yet of I wills and I won'ts. If you're like me, it's the same list as last year, right? <laughs> I will exercise more. I will not eat desserts. Neither one of those are true. I'm not going to do it. Um, it's the same old thing. Resolutions are really leftover good intentions uh, over the past uh, year. They're rarely new ideas. They're usually rehashing things that we probably should have been doing all along. We just haven't been as faithful as we wanted to. And so the new year provides kind of a new motivation to do things that we should have been doing already. But really, there's nothing magical about the new year. Um, there's nothing new about the ideas that we come up with. Um, I think this year maybe we ought to consider something different. Uh, if you're like me, you know that uh, the promises that we make, we often break, right? We just are fickle by nature as humans. And, and we need to depend on something that is more dependable than we are. Um, instead of the commitments that we break, my encouragement as we begin this new year is to focus in on the promises that God makes. I encourage us to think about standing on commitments he's made to us and let that be where we resolve over the next year that that's where we're going to live. We're going to stand on the promises of God. And in Psalm 91, there is a gold mine. We're going to look at this together this morning. In three verses, there are eight promises that God makes to us that I want us to consider standing on and being resolute to live by over the next year. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come to you, we do so knowing that we are weak, that we are feeble, that we're fickle. Even our good intentions often don't lead us to faithful commitments. Um, and, and so we need something beyond ourselves. We need something stronger than us, more dependable, 
more faithful. And so ultimately, we need you. We need your promises lived out in our life and that we can stand on the commitments that you've made to us. So as we look at your word this morning, would you help some of these come to life? Help us see them with fresh eyes and a renewed vision of what it looks like to be faithful in living these out uh, over the next year. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would turn to Psalm 91, as you do, let me give you a little background or context to this psalm. It was likely written for soldiers, ironically. It was written for men who were going into battle with the assurance that God's presence was with them. You remember what David said when he said, the battle belongs to the Lord. And so this psalm is reflective of that heart. It's a call to trust in God in the midst of battle. Now, you may hear that and think, well, what does a psalm for the military have to do with me? And I would suggest to you that it has everything to do with you for the very reason of what I just asked you to pray for me about. I truly believe that every day we live, we go into spiritual warfare. There's a battle going on for our hearts, for our minds. And and so each day we face an enemy who wants to distract us. And so we need to be prepared for battle each day we wake up and start out a new day. And so this psalm, written for soldiers, is ultimately written for us. It's written for us to equip us for the battle that we face, to stand faithful for the Lord in the world in which we live. So with that in mind, let's begin looking at Psalm 91 together. Begins and says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Will, be a, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Honestly, if you were to make a resolution this next year, I think this should be it. I suggest that we all commit to putting these two verses to memory over the next few days so that we begin to live out of the reality of what this passage is telling us that we have a commitment to dwell in the shelter of the almighty to to be in the presence of the lord to be strengthened in our faith because we're growing in our trust so maybe part of our resolution this year is to live by the truths of of psalm 91 and maybe commit these first two verses to memory i think the the key is found in that word dwell or abide it's actually the same word used different times in that first verse. It's the idea of remaining, not getting in a hurry, being in a place where you're secure and you want to stay there. It reminds me of the story you may have heard before of firefighters who would move through a forest fire after it's had made its destruction. And what they would do is they would go back through that destroyed forest, essentially, looking for hot spots that they need to extinguish to prevent it from flaring up and causing other fires. As you can imagine, firefighters see all kinds of things when they move through the destruction of a forest fire. And this particular firefighter tells the story of uh, coming up on a smoldering lump in the middle of the trail. And as he walked up closer to that little smoldering lump, he realized that it was a large bird. And he began to think to himself, why didn't that bird just fly off? It's fully capable of escaping the fire. Maybe it was injured. Maybe it was sick. He wasn't sure, but he needed to extinguish it, so he kind of kicked that lump. And when he did, four little baby chicks ran out from underneath it. 
that bird could have flown away, but it chose to stay because hidden underneath its wings were the young. Now, you may have heard that story before, but I want you to consider with me just for a minute, how did those little chicks get there? Because if you think about it, when there's chaos and panic going around, there's no possible way that this mama bird went out and gathered all those chicks, right? Instead, the mama bird probably had to stay in one place and call those chicks to come to her. They had to trust her enough to run to her to find refuge under her wings. The very same thing is true for us. We have to trust in the Lord enough that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the panic, in the midst of all the things that are going on in our life, we know that that's where we go for protection. He's calling us, and he's inviting us under the shelter of his wing. The psalm teaches us that if we trust in God, that there are promises, there's protection that he provides for us. So, I want to turn to verse 14 now, and we're going to unpack eight promises in these three verses that God makes to us when we run to him for shelter and protection. So let's begin to unpack this together. Verse 14, because he has loved me, this is God speaking, therefore I will deliver him. Promise number one, I will deliver him. When we put our trust in God, God promises that he will deliver us. The word love in verse 14 literally means to delight. So another way that you could say this is when we delight in God, God promises to deliver us. If you look at the old or excuse me, the New Testament, you'll find that one of the things that Jesus says is that when we delight in God, we are faithful to follow his commandments. When we trust him enough to follow his word, that's where we find protection. God's word leads us away from sin's destructive path. God's word provides a way of escape. We know that because of what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, right? There's no temptation that is, comes upon us that's not common to man and that God is faithful And he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. But in everything, he promises to provide a way of escape. Sin brings destructions, but God's commands keep us safe. God will deliver us from sin, from temptation. We know that God will deliver us from our enemies. We know that's true because of how many times we see in the Psalms David praying for that very thing, right? Deliver me from my enemies. David knew that that God would come to his defense and that if God was for him, then who could be against him? The Bible tells us that God hymns us in. It explains that by saying that he is both before us and he comes after us. It's this idea of being surrounded by the presence of God so that nothing, nothing that is around you can impact you without first passing through him. He protects us. In fact, not even death can stand in the way 
I love this passage. I've put it up on the screen for you, but you might want to write it down. It's 2 Corinthians, verses, uh, I'll start in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we were desperate even for life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril and we and, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. See, when we delight in God, God promises that he will delight in us, that he will deliver us. He will deliver us from sin. He will deliver us from temptation. He will deliver us from our enemies. And ultimately, he will deliver us from death. Death doesn't even have the power to control you when you have been raised up with Christ through faith and trust in him. That's just one promise that he promises he, de- he will deliver us. Let's look at another one. Second half of verse 14. I will set him securely on high because he knows my name. Promise number two, I will protect him. It says he will set us securely on high. It's the idea of protecting someone by taking them out of harm's way. So in my boys were small, and if we were walking through the countryside, and if we heard a, a rattlesnake, those boys would be in my arms before they ever knew what happened to them. I mean, I would yank them up and pull them and protect them. The snake could do anything he wanted to, but he was not going to get to my boys. That was the, that's the, the picture, the idea of what God does when he sets us securely on high. He is pulling us out of harm's way to protect us from something we may not even see ourselves. And, and that's the idea of what it means for him to protect us. But much like those baby chicks, you see, my boys had to be close to me. They had to run to me, not run from me. And the same is true in our experience with God. We've got to run to him, not run from him, especially in times of trouble. And we do that because we know his name. Now, that doesn't mean that there's just a title that we know somebody by, Mark or Thomas or we're not, when you hear those names, there are attributes that you think about on these people. Same thing when you hear the name of God. You should think about things that you know about his heart. That's what it means to, to know his name. So when you hear the name of God, you think about things like all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, creator, sustainer of life. The more you know about who God is, the safer you feel about what he can do. Because you know his name. You've been in his presence. You understand his heart. That's what it means to be protected by him. Now look at verse 15. He will call upon me and I will answer him. God God promises to deliver us. He promises to protect us. And now he promises to answer us when we call on his name. And don't get, miss the fact that, that God is answering when we call. It's like James reminds us, we do not have because we do not ask. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be answered. 
There's no qualification here. Paul tells us in Romans, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, when you call upon the name of the Lord in faith, he is faithful to answer your call. Scripture says God hears the heart of the humble, a broken and contrite heart. He will not refuse. That's a promise. When we call upon God in faith, God promises to answer our call. Now, as I say that, I realize that there are times that we get an answer that we really don't want to receive, right? There are prayers that we uh, make that, that we want something specific and God does something different. But we need to understand that prayer is not a process of shifting God's will to ours. Prayer is a process of shifting our heart to God's will. And when we know his name, because we've been in his presence, and we understand his heart, because we've been protected under his care, then we trust that he knows things that we cannot see. And we can understand that he is in control. And even if we don't comprehend, we can trust in his hand of protection. Look at the second part of verse 15. I will be with him in trouble. God promises to be with us in times of trouble. This is the promise of God's presence. It reminds me of that uh, sermon that Louis Giglio gives when he talks about Psalm 23. And he focuses in on that part of the passage where it says that the Lord prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. It's the idea that, that sometimes God does lift us out of harm's way. But sometimes he enters into the trouble and he is present with us. He builds a table, uh, prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. God is with you because God is for you. We see this explicitly in the New Testament when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he makes a promise to them when he tells them, I will send you a comforter and he will be with you forever. And then he identifies that comforter as the spirit of truth. Paul takes that same idea and goes on to explain that, do you not know that you are the temple of God? That the spirit of God dwells within you? God is present through the power of the spirit at work in our lives. He is with us. He is for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Sometimes he lifts us out of trouble. Sometimes he enters in. But here's the promise. He is always with us. We are always in his presence. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And that's a promise. Look at how he continues in the third part there, verse 15. I will rescue him and honor him. Two promises back to back. I will rescue him. And then he says, I will honor him. Being rescued, I think, is similar to being delivered, but maybe one step further. I think of deliverance more like a detour and, and rescue being more of a, a permanent removal. So, for example, we talked about being delivered from temptation in that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 passage. Well, when we think about that, we recognize the fact that the temptation remains. He didn't take away the temptation. He just provided you a way of escape out of it. It's a detour. 
for you to be delivered from that temptation that remains. A rescue is a removal. So, for example, in Colossians, where it talks about how we have been rescued out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So we are removed from sin's control and transferred into the kingdom of his grace. It is a permanent removal from one reality into another. Well, that same idea is what salvation is all all based on. Salvation is based on God's rescue. It's the removal, the permanent removal of sin's curse. It's the permanent removal of sin's condemnation. It's the reason that it tells us in in Romans that, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It has been removed because you have been rescued from sin's dominion. In Thessalonians, it talks about uh, being removed from the, the day of God's wrath. When I hear that term, more often than not, you see it being attributed to the tribulation. And so when you see the fact that we are rescued from the tribulation, that means we are removed. That's why we look at the church being raptured, removed before the tribulation because that's the day of God's wrath and we have been rescued from God's wrath a permanent removal God says I will rescue you and then he says I will honor you and the idea here is not that God exalts us above himself in some way the idea here is God honoring us by inviting us to be a part of his kingdom plan You may remember the scene when Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he tells them, I did this as an example so that you would go and do the same, one for another. But then he goes on to say that a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one, nor is the servant greater than the one who sends him. See, God honors us by sending us to serve, and we're not greater than him because we do so. In fact, We honor God when we glorify Him. And God honors us when we glorify Him by allowing us to experience what it means to be a part of His kingdom plan. To have value and purpose in something that is eternally significant. Is there anything that honors you more than that? To be a a significant, a, a purposeful, a valuable part of something that lasts for eternity? See, that's pretty honoring. And I think that's the idea of what it means to be honored by God. Now look at verse 16. He says, with a long life, I will satisfy him. <laughs> Promise number seven. I will satisfy him. See, that satisfaction comes through a fulfilling life. It's the idea behind what uh, Solomon tells his son in Proverbs. Just listen to what he says in Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments the length, for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Samuel understands that there is goodness built into God's design. 
And when we live in accordance with God's design, we live a fulfilling, a satisfying life. Which does not mean that life is always easy. But God actually promises that there is joy in the midst of difficulties. That you can find it even in the midst of trials. That's why James writes in James chapter 1. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that's a good thing. So let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God brings good things out of hard times. In fact, he can use all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. There's goodness built into his design. And when we put our trust in him, he will satisfy us. That's a promise. Still another one. Look at the last part of verse 16. And I will let him behold my salvation. God promises to show us his salvation. That phrase, let him see, literally means cause him to feast his eyes upon. Very colorful, right? Very descriptive. It's the idea that this is not simple observation. This is something that you look at and stand in awe of. I think we get a picture of what that really looks like in the New Testament when Simeon looks into the face of baby Jesus. We looked at this passage, but I want to look at it again. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And listen closely to what Simeon describes about what he sees. Let's start in verse 25. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you have let me, your bondservant, depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. The main reason that Simeon saw the salvation of the Lord is because he was looking for it. He was looking for it. The main reason he was looking for a Savior was because he knew he needed one. He needed one. If you don't need it, you're not looking for it. But when you need it, you look for it. And when he saw Jesus, he knew that he was looking upon the salvation of the Lord. We see God's salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, our Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is not someone that we simply observe in passing, but he's who we stand in awe of. That's who we worship. That's what the songs we sing are all about. 
Because when we see Jesus, we see the salvation of the Lord. He is God's promise fulfilled. So as we think about the new year, I want us to consider turning from our fragile commitments to God's faithful promises. And I want you to consider those eight promises in just three verses where God says to us that when we trust in him, he promises that he will deliver us, that he'll protect us, that he'll answer us when we call, that he'll be with us in trouble, that he will rescue us, that he'll honor us, he'll satisfy us with a fulfilling life, and then ultimately he will show us his salvation. And we will see that every time we look into the face of Jesus Christ. So just take a minute. Look at that list. Think about what those words mean as we looked at them in our passage this morning. Now you tell me, if this time next year you lived out of the reality of those promises, would it be a good year? Would you have any regrets? Absolutely not. That's the thing about resolutions. I hate them because I just get filled with regret because I know next year I'm going to have the same ones. I'm regretful that I didn't do better the previous year. Well, if we live out of the promises of God and we see those being a part of how we live our lives, we don't come to this point next year with any regrets because God is faithful even when we are not. And so let me encourage you over the next few days to maybe spend some time in Psalm 91. Consider memorizing those first two verses and then spend some focused time, maybe taking one of these a day and think about what it means to be delivered and protected and, and consider how that can be lived out in your life this next year. What would it be like if our commitment over the next year was to stand on the promises of God? Would it make a difference? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing that traditional hymn that we've heard before, Standing on the Promises of God. It's a great hymn, and I want you to listen and sing the words, paying attention to what is being said in light of what we looked at in our passage this morning. We do that? And, and let's just see if you don't find Psalm 91 being played out in the lyrics to this hymn, and let it be kind of your prayer can you do that? Can you turn this last song into your prayer of what you will do to faithfully follow Christ over this next year? So, Mark. Ready? Here we go. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God My Savior standing, standing I'm standing on the promises of God 
Standing on the promises that cannot fail When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail By the living word of God I shall prevail Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Savior Standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all. Standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. All right? That's our prayer. No regrets. Fresh start. Standing on the promises of God. Let me pray for our time. Lord, thank you so much for your promises, for your faithfulness. Because of our weakness, we need you. And we're looking to you because we depend on you. We cannot live life that is fulfilling without you. And so, Father, we're going to run to you. We're going to find protection in your promises because you are faithful. So all the things that you said in your word and all the promises that you've made to us when we trust in you, we're going to believe it. And we're going to live it out this next year and see your hand at work, not only in our lives, but through our lives to the world around us. Because you've given us the privilege to be a part of your kingdom plan. There's work to be done. And your grace is sufficient. We pray this.